Okay, uh, let's do our Bible study. Pick up where we left off last week. Have you absolutely terrified looking at the page? There's even more notes than last week. So uh, we'll, we'll get through it because I'm going to go faster than normal. Hey, I, we, we have the grandkids this week and there's a tendency that I notice with them. And it's not unique to them alone. Yeah, but if I'm doing something with one of them, the other immediately assumes they have to be involved. Okay, if one is sitting in the other room and I say, hey, come here, and we're doing something, the other one, even if it doesn't pertain to them, jumps in and says, I want to do it too. Even if it's work, they don't, but as soon as they find out about work, then it stops. But have you ever run into people who do that? That uh, whether they be young or even some of us adults have this tendency. We walk into conversations, we don't know what it's about, but we interject ourselves because we think it applies to me and I don't want to miss out. I think that happens a lot in the Christian realm. And for some people, it happens when we talk it into discussions or we get in, run into people that start talking about the gifts of the Spirit. <clears throat> it's interesting that I used the illustration last week about Terry Bradshaw writing about how he was being trained to speak in tongues and his conclusion was in his autobiography that if it's something that is a gift from God, why does he have to be taught how to implement it? I was surprised how many of you told me that somewhere in your Christian experience, usually when you were early in your walk with the Lord, that people encouraged you to get involved with something, speaking in tongues or something like that, that you had no clue about, but they were encouraging you to do this, get involved with it as if you were missing out on something. Are we really missing out if we don't have some of those miraculous, supernatural experiences like tongues or healing or what's frequently called, it's not in Scripture, but it's frequently called the slaying of the Spirit. Have you ever seen that? Okay, you ever see a film or something where, where they show it? <clears throat> I saw a preacher preaching at Notre Dame and uh, they had this Pentecostal preacher and as he preached, he would just take his jacket and he'd wave it over part of the audience and everybody collapsed, and then he would wave it over on this side, and everybody collapsed, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, that sure does not look modest. I mean, they were collapsing, and they were piling on, and then one guy tried to get up, and he waved his coat at him, and the guy fell right back down. Okay, what is that? Is it something that we need? I'm not sure if I want it, but is it something that we need? And we hear about those things, and so sometimes there's a lot of confusion, especially when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, which the Word of God gives us explanation. The lengthiest passage of Scripture that deals with the gifts of the Spirit is chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to head there, and we're going to do something unusual with chapter 14 in a minute, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 2. So while you're going and getting there, just let me remind you that the Bible Bible gives some information about these gifts of the Spirit in several texts. It's not limited to the book of Acts where we get a little bit of information, but in the epistles and one gospel they give us a little bit more detail about the different spiritual gifts. If we were to combine those all together, there's more than just tongues or there's more than healings. But again, I point out there is no slaying of the Spirit mentioned in Scripture. So I don't know what that is all about, but the gifts of the Spirit, there's several of them, quite a few of them that are listed in Scripture, some 20 plus, and I'm not convinced that it is, a, it is an exhaustive list, but what I do know is that some of those look very miraculous, some of them look like positions and, um, <clears throat> and offices, some look like they could be just normal things that you have, gifts, talents, whatever you'd like to call it, or abilities that God might heighten like he did with those who were building the, the temple back in uh, years gone by. But the one area that we hear the most about is this area of tongues, as if it is the only gift. We've had multiple discussions. Almost every year I get people who have visited our church, some for a period of time, some for just a short time, and we get into conversations. What about the gift of tongues? And they always take me back to Acts chapter 2, and they point out that they did speak with tongues, which, by the way, is absolutely true. We read in Acts chapter 2, most of you are very familiar with it, it says, but when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because they heard every, every 
man heard them speak in his own language. They're all amazed. They marvel, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we are were born? And then lists the multiple different nations and languages that they're hearing. And he concludes and he says in verse 11, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, what is the meaning of this? Others mock, said these guys are drunk. And so it goes on and we know, we know as Christians that really happened. That was a phenomenal day. It was a miraculous event. And yet <clears throat> lots of questions come out of this this passage that follow up in generations later. Questions about, about this whole idea of tongues. Should we speak in it? Shouldn't we speak in it? How can we get it? Several of you told me you had the same experience my family did. We were baby Christians. Somebody came along and told us how to speak in tongues. Got us aside in the bedroom, told us to say this one phrase over and over and over and as we were to repeat it, we were to go faster and faster and faster and faster until all of a sudden we tur it turned into speaking in tongues. Is that something that God wants us to learn? Is it something we're supposed to do? And uh, the position we have as a church in our doctrinal statement is we believe it's non-functioning, and yet somebody will point out to me that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the last couple of verses say, forbid not to speak in tongues. And so how can we say it's not functional? In fact, there are passages that talk about praying in tongues. And if we prayed in tongues, God would hear us. And we could speak to God and God alone. How do we deal with those passages? And shouldn't we have this? And if it is true, and if it really happens, man, are we missing out on it? There's a bottom line is this. There are some things about this gift of tongues that is really unclear. Here, I'll throw out that I'm not certain about how this worked how it worked in the Bible. I am not sure in the mechanics of the gift of tongues, was, the, was it in the hearing or the speaking or a combination of both? We hear them speaking in our own tongues. Is the emphasis upon the miracle happening with the hearing or the miracle with the speaking? I'm inclined to do, go with the speaking, but where exactly did it happen? As the men opened their mouth, it came pouring forth, or did they hear them? Some have asked the question about what happens in 1 Corinthians 14 where it says you have to have the interpreter. How did that work if Brian had the gift of tongues and we were supposed to find an interpreter first of all? How did we go about finding that? I know it's implied that we had to have an interpreter beforehand. Was it because one person in that room was the common interpreter and it's a gift of interpretation? How do we know if that person had the gift well, you know, prior to him speaking those tongues. I don't know the mechanics of all that. I don't know exactly how it worked out. I know what the passage says, that you weren't supposed to speak in tongues unless we found that somebody had the gift of interpretation. How we did that, I don't know. How they did it, I don't understand. But I do know there's a whole lot of facts in the scriptures that are often overlooked. And even overlooked by us because we just say, well, my church doesn't believe in it. That's not the way we answer this discussion amongst our brethren who say, why don't you speak in tongues? We need to be able to understand from the Bible what the Bible teaches about this topic. And so I want to go in, in a little bit more in depth in chapter 14. But before I do that, let's answer some of the questions from Acts chapter 2 where we just read about tongues and give you some facts that are very clear in Scripture. Fact number one, what exactly is this tongue? Is it angel speak? Is it heavenly speech? I've been told by one of the local pastors who encourages his congregation to speak in tongues, he said it is a heavenly speech. It is the original language that, they're going to, that, was, that they speak in tongues, the language that was spoken all the way in the Garden of Eden. He doesn't know what it was, whatever it, you know, that, that language was. But he says it's an unknown language to human race today. It's a heavenly language, and the reason that you speak in tongues in a heavenly language is so that the devil doesn't understand what you're saying. That way he can't interfere or intrude as you pray in tongues because he can't figure it out. Okay, so... I only have, I have several obvious questions come to my mind right away as, wasn't the devil in heaven at one time? Is he an idiot that he only knows one language? Or does he know several? And um, what good is it if I don't even know what I'm praying? You know, if the devil doesn't know what I'm praying and it's to keep him in darkness in prayer, well, I'm in darkness when I'm praying, if I'm praying some speech that I don't even know. 
And so what exactly is it? The Bible is clear that when somebody spoke in tongues in the Bible, they were actually speaking a real language, and a hu real human language, a language that would have been known on the earth at that time, a language that they had never studied. It would be like me being able to all of a sudden speak in Russian, me being able to speak in Portuguese, me all of a sudden being able to speak in really good English for a change. It was you know, a language that we don't comprehend, one that all of a sudden we have. Here's why I say that. Look at Acts chapter 2. You may want to mark your Bibles because this is where you're going to get into some discussions. In verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. The word tongues there in the original is glossa or glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A. It occurs some 30 plus times in the New Testament, every occasion it's referring to a foreign language. It's the idea of a tongue or a, a language that somebody is speaking, a human language. Take it a little bit further. In chapter 2, look down in verse 6, it says, every man heard them speak in his own language. The word for language in verse 6 is dialectos. What does that sound like to you in English? Dialect. Okay, that's where we get dialect, which is a, is a form of a human language. By the way, does English have multiple dialects? Yes, it does. Okay, There's, does, does dialects change in from different regions? Absolutely. And he's saying we are hearing them speak regional speeches and, or words, and it could even be that they're speaking something that has a dialect to it, a certain twang or a certain whatever, and they're understanding that. And so that occurs, that word dialectos in verse 6. Also look at verse 8, where it says, how hear we every man in our own tongue? The word tongue is dialectos in the original. So what you have in this text is he's using glossa and dialectos interchangeably, referring to the same thing. And so with that in mind, here's what I have that comes to, to my, my thinking, is he lists off, we hear all these different people speaking, and they're speaking in our tongues, and he lists a variety of different areas that had unique glossa, unique dialects to them. So I, I'm, my conclusion is very simple in my mind, that what he is saying is there isn't gibberish going on there is actual foreign language speaking. Language that was, that was clearly from this region called a dialect that was a human foreign language. There is not dialects of gibberish. There are not different regional gibberishes <clears throat> or something that is totally you know, um, in, incomprehensible. So he's talking about real human languages. In fact, he talks about the gift of interpretation. Let me take you a step further with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about the gift of interpretations. The word is literally this word, hermeneuo. It means to take from one language and put into another language the study of hermeneutics, the study of, of translation. And so what he's talking about is he's saying there are different kinds of tongues, different types of, or there's interpretations, and then he also says in 1 Corinthians 12, different kinds of tongues. I want you to catch a word here. In this word, the kinds means family or order. We get that, we use that in science, the different families or different, you know, different groupings. And so he says in, when talking about tongues, there's different kinds or groupings or families of different, uh, of different languages. Is that true? Even today, can we look back in history and say, oh yeah, a whole group of, fam of languages come from a family. We say at times the romantic or Rom uh, Romish type family of languages, that Western European. A lot of that has Romish, and they have a lot of common characteristics, and sometimes the words overlap. And so <clears throat> there's different families in dialects and languages in the Far East. Are a lot of those Far Eastern languages, are they like in one family where their, their sounds are different than ours? Very tonal. Very tonal languages. And they have similarities to them. <clears throat> Put them in the same family groups. When you talk about gibberish, when you talk about just incomprehensible speech, the point is, is there different families of gibberish? Are there different kinds of gibberish? I think not. We are talking about real, obvious, clear, you know, uh, definable languages that are very, very clear that Paul is saying, in, or in John, uh, Luke in writing, in writing Acts is saying, these people are speaking in human languages. They are not some gibberish. It is not some ecstatic speech. Now, some of you are going to respond because you've heard this at work. You have some coworkers that say, well, wait a minute. If it, is, if it isn't some ecstatic speech, if it isn't, if, it, if you say it's some type of 
a foreign language, why does he use an, the phrase unknown tongue? You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You go to 1 Corinthians 14. You will see <clears throat> several times where he says they speak in an unknown tongue. Why does he say that? Why doesn't he say a foreign tongue? Why doesn't he say, you know, a, a tongue that is of a different region? So the conclusion is because in the English it says unknown tongue, it must be gibberish. That's really unfortunate because if you look at all the times that it occurs, in fact, let's head over to 1 Corinthians 14. And I want you, you to see something, and some of you know this so well already, you can, you can just uh, spout it off. But <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 14, where he talks about the uh, unknown tongue. Let's take chapter 14, verse 2. For he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. You jump down a little bit, verse 4. He that speaks in an unknown tongue. My Bible has something very unique about the word unknown in those two passages. It's in italics, which means what? It's an added, it's added by the, by the translators. It means that in the original language, there was no word for unknown there. It was, to be, it was put in to give clarification. It's so back in 1611, when they clarified by putting in an unknown tongue, what were they meaning by unknown? Today we would change it. Today we would say foreign, a foreign tongue or a foreign language. But back then they used the word unknown to describe somebody that was speaking in a language they didn't understand. It was an unknown tongue. So don't let a, an interpreter's addition into your Bible create your theology and form some type of position. All he's saying in the original language is, in verse 2, he's saying, for he that speaks in a, an tongue, glossa, a foreign tongue is the way it should be interpreted by our understanding. So it's no problem with that. It's there. It's just an insert that was done by the interpreters, the translators, and we understand that the Bible supports the idea that they spoke in real languages. Let me take you a step further. We mentioned this last week. The, the gift of tongues was intended to be assigned to unbelieving Jews. We pointed out 1 Corinthians 14, 21, in the law, Isaiah, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. He goes on, wherefore tongues are for a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. I'm going to make a, a statement here. I want you to think this through, study it, and see if it's not true. We were, we're concluding here by that verse that it's a sign to unbelieving Jews. Okay? You go through the book of Acts and you find the few times that in the book of Acts tongues occurred. And you will see that this is a truth. That every time they occurred, they are occurring in the presence of Jews who need to be moved spiritually. One of those occasions, they are believing Jews. They are saved, but they don't believe a major part of the gospel. They don't believe the Gentiles can get it. And so in Acts chapter 10, they are needing to be moved in their faith to realize the gospel can go to the Jews. Every other occasion in the book of Acts, there's unbelieving Jews present. Now you say, but that, then how do you explain 1 Corinthians, that that church had a lot of tongues going on, obviously in this text. How do we know there was Jews present? Because Acts 18, when they were in the, in the church of Corinth where they started it, was immediately adjacent to the Jewish synagogue. So the services, which would be held in the courtyards, were being held right, very next, to, uh, right next to the very place where the Jews are worshiping. There would be cross contact, there would be interaction between those two groups. Number three, they were referred to as an inferior gift. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he makes the comment, let's go back to chapter 13, where he's talking and he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and I have not charity, I'm becoming a sounding brass. You know the rest of it. He is saying that tongues are not as great as love. Go to chapter 14, verse 1. Follow after love. Desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. For he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God, but, and, and no man understands him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries, but he that prophesies speaks unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. And he goes on and he says, like in verse 39, wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy. 
yet don't forbid to speak in tongues. And so if we, as we'll see in a few minutes when we go through the chapter more in depth, we're going to see that Paul considered tongues an inferior gift. Unfortunately today, it is the gift that so many seek after, but it's not the gift that Paul said you should seek after. And so we make in fact number four. They were never intended to be practiced by all believers. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you may want to mark your Bible where he asks these questions. Now in the original language, when they ask questions, the way that they use the wording, as far as the words that they used, I should say, not by inflection, but by actual words, you would know if it's a yes or a no question. You could tell by the wording that he uses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30, the words that he uses, here's your implication, are all apostles. It's very clear in the original language the answer is no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? He's not asking just, you know, for the sake of throwing it out. He is clarifying in the original language the answer is no. Are all workers of miracles? The answer is no. Have all the gifts of healings? It's clear by the Greek that it, the answer is no. Do all speak with tongues? Guess what? He's consistent all the way through. When he says, all, do all speak with tongues? His answer is no, no. And yet we have some of our brethren who will say, you've got to speak with it. God intended. That is exactly the opposite of what Scripture says. Scripture says God never intended that all of us, if it were functional, and if we were living back in Bible days, never intended that all of us would speak in tongues. Never, never in the Word of God does it say that. Let's do, um, let's do another thought here. Number five. Number five as we go through. There were clear limitations. We talked about this last week. We pointed out that in verses 27 through 34 that he's giving, in 1 Corinthians 14, he is going to give some, uh, some requirements or limitations that he lists out. He says, let's jump down in the text, verse 27, if any man speak in an unknown or a foreign tongue, let it be by two or three at the most, let it be in order or by course one after another, let one interpret, if there be no one interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, let him speak to himself and to God, let the prophets speak two or three, let others judge or, or discern, and he goes on and on, and then he concludes this, he says in verse 34, in context, let your woman keep silence in the church. And so we can go all the way back to the book of Acts. I mentioned this last week that when they spoke in tongues the first time in Acts chapter 2, all of the men, all 12 of them spoke in tongues, seems to be simultaneous without any interpreters. The people heard it. It was impacting. It made the impression. But then, several decades later, he sets up requirements. He says limitations. Only two or three. No more all 12. He says they have to be one at a time by course. He says that they have to have an interpreter. He says, not the ladies to do it. Something happens, something changed between Acts at the day of Pentecost, and now we're talking around 55, 60 AD when Corinthians is being written, that he's saying, I want it to be limited. I want restrictions. I propose to you that what has happened is the Christians got carried away with the gift. They abused the gift. They were making it much more than God intended, that they were, they were propagating it, they were promoting it, and he is saying to them, listen, you've got it all wrong. You're trying to make it sound that everybody's supposed to speak in tongues. No, they aren't. You're trying to make it sound like that, that it's a prayer language. No, it's not. You're trying to make it sound like this is something you should do in private. No, you shouldn't. This is, you're trying to make it sound like these people are talking to God in a very unique way. No, they aren't. And so what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 14 is he's trying to get people back to a, to a clear understanding that the tongues are not what they were thinking they are. They are not supposed to be promoting this one gift above all the other gifts. And his greatest concern is that the people who are doing the tongues are the people who are thinking they are superior to other Christians. Does that all sound familiar? Does it, does it sound like the same modern-day problem? That people who promote this are, are being self-deluded by an experience that the Word of God never encouraged all of us to have. And so Paul is writing that to tell them, to warn them because of the abuse being done in the church. And it's very clear that just because something happened in, at one spot in Scripture doesn't mean it's going to be happening today. And so God made those changes. Here's the point I want to spend a little bit more time in 1 Corinthians 14. And I want to challenge you the way you read the chapter to come 
come and read it from a different way that you've probably read it before. That you read it with, with uh, understanding Paul's tone and Paul's intent and it will really, really make a whole lot more sense to you if you understand that he is, well, let me see if I can illustrate it. Can I say certain, uh, certain words and have totally different meanings by my tone? Can I say, I love you? And it means something. And other times, I love you. Did that change the meaning? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I love you. Did that change the meaning? Okay. Can Paul be writing, and, and if we understand, and if we do the whole study and come to his conclusion, and then read it with his, his intent, could that change the interpretation? I believe it does drastically. If you read it with the understanding of here's where Paul is going. And by the way, do Christians ever get snide when they're trying to tear something down? Can we, be, can we use exagger exaggerations? Like you think you're doing this. Yeah. Can we talk like that? It, it, the problem is, the problem is sometimes when we read the scripture, we read it like an email. We don't fully understand where they're coming from. And can it make a big difference where the person is coming from when you get that email? And big problems is if you think they're coming from this direction and they're coming from that direction. Okay, let's, let's do something. Let's approach 1 Corinthians 14 understanding that what we've already given you for facts, that Paul isn't encouraging tongues, but he is what? He is discouraging it because it's gotten out of hand. Now, if you read the text with Paul from that point of view, man, it reads different. Let me, let me point out where it, where it concludes. Paul is saying that this, this practice of tongues is not well suited for worship service. And by the way, understand he's writing 1 Corinthians, tell them how they're supposed to conduct worship, how they're supposed to live their Christian life. And he's saying to them, this isn't something that you should be promoting. It's gotten carried away. Your services have been basically hijacked by experientialism, and you need to stop that. You got people running to church to say, hey, listen, I, I want to be here, and I, I got to get some pizzazz, something to carry me through the week, and, you know, do something that really, really motivates me and gets me all juiced up. By the way, would that be, make us feel good? Would that be nice at times? To get all pumped up? Sure, sure. I mean, do we need that sometimes? Well, can we all of a sudden get so caught up with dynamics and dramatics that that's what we look for? And it becomes a substitute? for substantive walking with the Lord? Do you think that ever happens? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's what's going on. Here, let me give you, let me give you my thought, where Paul is coming from. Starting with verse, let's jump down to verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 31. In chapter 12, verse 31, he says this, Covered earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now, we, understand, we all know that chapter 13 is basically a parenthesis. Chapter 12 is dealing with gifts. Chapter 14 is dealing with gifts. There's this, there's this parenthesis of the love chapter that he's mostly, that's his focus. Then he gets back to the gifts once again. So let's take chapter 12, where he's going, talking about the gifts, 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 gifts. And he's saying, you know, and it sounds like in your, in your, what we just read, it sounds like a command. It sounds like he is telling them, covet earnestly the best of gifts. Doesn't it? Yes, no? It sounds like a command. Do you know that in the original language, it's not necessarily a command? In the original language, it, the, way it, the words that he used, it could be a statement that he is saying, you are earnestly seeking the most prominent gifts, and I'm going to show you a more excellent way. I understand where he's going from, where he's coming from. He is saying, you people are going after what you think is the most important but I'm going to show you something that's much better. Now, if we read it that way and understand, then the chapter starts flowing. Now, what he is talking about, he's saying, you're caught up with the gift of tongues that you think is the most important. You think it is the best of gifts. And I'm telling you, it's not. And it's not for everyone. I've already just said that, but you've been saying it is. And you think that this is the best thing that you can get after. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And it fits the second part of the statement a whole lot more if we read it not as a command, not as an imperative, but the way it can read in the original language as a statement of fact. 
that this is what the people are doing. The people are searching after, zealously seeking after, and by the way, they weren't supposed to be seeking after any gift because the gifts come to them. And so he's saying, you are, you are pressing the issue of tongue, 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 tongues. And I, I want to correct that. There is something more important than tongues, number one. It is what? Chapter 13. What's more important than tongues? Love. Because what's happening with tongues? Though those of you who are getting it, you are thinking you are better than the rest of the people. Let me start off saying this. Love is the most important thing. Now let's jump to chapter, third, to chapter 14 and pick up the rest of his discussion. Follow after what? Charity. And desire that which is spiritual. But rather, if you're going to go after anything, seek after what? Here's an imperative. Seek after what gift? What does he say? Chapter 14, verse 1. Prophesying. For he that speaks in a foreign language speaks not unto men, but unto who? Uh, by the way, what, what, what's, your, what's your lettering look like for God? Capital G? Are you sure that's the way the original reads? It doesn't. The original has no definitive article. You speak unto a God. Does that make sense to you? That what he's saying is that you are having some, some possible spiritual interactions to some spirit. Let me, let me take you back. Bible history. Okay. Did, did the Christians and only the Christians use ecstatic speech in their worship? No. It was very common that you could go into a temple and you could get into some ecstatic um, um, state. And by the way, it could be induced by drugs, drink. And you'd get in this ecstatic speech and you could go into a trance and you could speak in some type of whatever. And it was assumed that when you do that, you are speaking to a God. A deity. And by the way, is there a good possibility they were? Could they be communicating with something in the spirit world that was letting them speak this way? It may not be Jehovah God. It may be some other spirit. Well, in the original it reads that you are speaking to a God. Not necessarily the God. It clearly doesn't say the God. It says a God. And so he's, he's saying in this text, he's saying, if you're going to seek after anything, if there's any gift, let, let's make this statement, okay? Paul say, but clearly is saying prophesying is better than tongues. If you're going to go after any gift, if, it, if that's in your mind, understand prophesying is so much better. He says it in verse, uh, in verse 1. He says that if we read down in verse 3, he that prophesies speaks unto men to edification, as if he's promoting it. He says, as we go on to verse 4, he that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies who? The church. He says in verse 5, I would that you all speak with tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. Okay? If I'm given a choice, Paul is saying, I'd rather have you all prophesy. Now what's prophesying? It could be foretelling the future. That we know. It could also be foretelling the word of God. Sharing what God has stated. And so it can be the preaching. It can be the teaching aspect of the Word of God. And so he is saying that this is, in, this is superior to this gift of tongues. In fact, if you go through scriptures, you will find this, this a clear indication that God's preferred method of instruction and edification was always preaching. It was always prophesying. I, I know this, this goes in the face of Americanism today. And, and, I, and I'm not saying it's wrong. But God's, God's method in Scripture was for declaration of truth, not sitting around and everybody just throwing in their two bits. And maybe, maybe we'll hit on truth. It was, it was the idea that somebody is presenting the truth clearly. Exhortation, admonition. And it's that preaching aspect. Now, is there room for discussion? I think so in Bible study, but I think where it drops short is when it's only discussion and it's no clarification. And all of a sudden in the discussion, somebody puts in something that is not relevant or not 
real according to Scripture, and it's let to ride. I think that's dangerous. And so we go back and say, okay, is there preaching? Well, <laughs> you can't get away from it. The job of the New Testament preacher that every church gets, his job is not to leave it to the people to come up with the truth, but he's supposed to pre pro pro proclaim the truth, supposed to exhort, he's supposed to admonish, he's supposed to build up. And so there's that aspect of somebody somewhere teaching, directing, and giving, giving clear, clear direction into the teaching. Prophesying is far preferred to everybody giving up, getting up and giving their own tidbits and two bits via the, via the guise of the gift of tongues. I also see this in 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 4, tell me if I'm wrong. If, it, if this doesn't show from Scripture, say something. But it sure looks in verse 4, he that speaks in an undone tongue, it's becoming, Paul is saying, that it's becoming one of self-promotion. He's criticizing the gift because what's happening in Corinth is it's becoming self-promotion of the individuals who have this gift. And it's a negative thing. By the way, didn't he already say in chapter 12, verse 7, that the gift was given to edify and profit the body, not the individual. It is the body. Didn't he also say that love is seeking not her own, but seeks others? And so after he's given that instruction, he's saying, here's where I see the flaw in the tongue speaking, where it's gone in Corinth. You guys are making it into a self-promotional type of a gift. I'll give you another reason why, why I say that Paul clearly to me is very clearly saying, this isn't something that I'm promoting and encouraging. He compared speaking in tongues to the sounds of an uncertain trumpet. Let me see if I can give you, give you a little bit of history, then we'll go into the text. What did they use trumpets for in Bible days? What would you use trumpets for? Signals. Okay, like who would use it as a signal? The army. How would the army use a trumpet to signal? What kind of things would they signal? Okay, somebody said a charge. Okay, if, would they have a certain tone or a certain tune that would say, now we're charging? Okay, what else would they use it for? Retreat. Okay, you better get the right sound, right? Okay, what else would they use it for? Okay, let's stay with the army for a second. Okay, some, some uh, good, somebody who's coming in, some authority, somebody coming in, walking in, okay, announcing some authority. How about, could they use it for waking up? Could they use it for lights out? Okay, could they use it for mess call? Okay, there'd be different tunes, okay, that were, would those tunes have to be clear and distinct? Okay, okay, now you might also use it in worship. Okay, would there be a certain tune that would be a call to worship? Sure. Now, with that in mind, knowing that that's in our culture as well as Bible cultures, follow along what he says. Where he says, I would that you all speak with tongues, but rather that you would prophesy. For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues, except he that interprets, that the church may receive edifying. There's his goal. Edifying, 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 not self-promotion. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by a revelation or knowledge of prophesying or doctrine. Those, pro those edify, the tongues don't, in other words. And even when, e even things without life giving sound, whether a pipe or harp, except they make a distinction in the sound, how shall it be known what is being piped or harped? He goes on. For if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who's going to prepare himself for the battle? So likewise you, except you utter by the tongue words easy to be understood... How shall it be known what is being blown about? What is being spoken? You're speaking into the air. Do you, do you follow what he said? Does it make sense what he's saying? If you're just getting up and you are just spouting gibberish and you have no clue what it is, what good is it? This is, and he, you guys, what you're doing isn't good. But you guys, is not, you're, it's like an uncertain sound. It's not being productive. And he goes on. I'll jump down towards the chapter. He says, if there be no interpreter, let the person keep silence. Let him speak to himself and to God. They were not understood. This is why it's a weak gift. They were not understood without an interpreter. You had to have an interpreter. He was, in other words, the tongues were an incomplete gift. They were only half a gift. They could only do half the job. Somebody speak in tongues, but without an interpreter, it wasn't, it wasn't fulfilled. Let me give you another thought. If, those, if they did not edify, okay, um, the, those who did, they, 
Yeah, they didn't edify the individuals who could not understand. We've already mentioned that back in verse 2, where he says, he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men. Okay, if you don't know what you're saying, if you don't understand it, what good is it, is what he's saying. So he's made a negative comment, and again, I take the, uh, the, uh, uh, the point that he, you're not speaking to men, you're not benefiting, you're not edifying, you're speaking to some spirit, now probably not the best of spirits. And then he says in this same chapter, if, verse 23, if the whole church be come together into one place, and all of you are speaking with tongues, and there come in one of those who hasn't even known the truth, an unbeliever, Will they not say you are all, what's your Bible read? What? Crazy? Insane? Goofy? Would they, could unsaved people be scared by this gift that looks like totally out of control? That's what he's saying. He is saying that it may hinder the testimony of the gospel, not help the gospel. In fact, he makes it very clear that the gift of tongues are obscuring the message. Go back to verse 16. Else, when you bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned say amen at your giving of thanks? Okay, you're praying in tongues. Let's set the scenario. You're standing there, you're praying in tongues. How, those of us who don't understand what you're saying, how do we say amen? By the way, have you ever been in one of those spots? where you're in a foreign country, somebody is praying for the meal, and they're speaking, and we have no clue. What do we, we don't know what they're saying, don't know if they're asking good things about this food, or, you know, you know protection from the food, we have no idea what they're saying, and what are you going to listen for? You're not listening to words, because you don't understand. You're listening for silence. Okay, silence means I can open my eyes. Okay, now I can, I can come along, what's that? Sometimes, yeah, because you don't know if somebody else is going to pick up. So he's saying, okay, how are they going to say amen? The word amen isn't the end of it. It means I agree with. How are they going to agree with the giving of thanks, seeing they don't understand what's being said? For you verily give thanks well, but the other isn't edified. They're not built up in your praise. Why? They don't understand what you're praising God for. And he says, I thank my God. Well, I'll come back to this one in a moment. Okay, verse 33. He is concluding and he's saying in verse 33 that, hey, listen, God, is, he says, God's not the author of confusion. In context, he is talking about limiting the tongues that are taking place. Why? They're contributing to confusion. God is not the author of confusion. Confusion in the mind of the unsaved. Confusion in the mind of the saved. They don't even know what's going on. Confusion in the fact that there could be several people standing up at one time and saying it and nobody knows what's being said. It's confusion in the fact that there's no interpreter. So it's just simple ramblings or ecstatic speech to all those of us and means absolutely nothing. Confusion, confusion, confusion. He says that is totally contrary to what God desires in the worship service. Tongues are not beneficial that way. Paul, who spoke more than anybody else, he says it. Look where he says it in verse, in verse 18. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than what? All of you people have. I've done this. I've had this. Yet in the church I would rather speak what? Five words with clear understanding that by my voice I might teach others than speak 10,000 words and nobody understands me. Now, that doesn't need any interpretation. You understand that. That Paul is very simply saying, I'm all about clear, concise speech that everybody can understand right off the bat. In fact, he is going to write, he's going to take us to that same thought that it is all about edifying the church. Verse 12, that you're supposed to be zealous, seek after the things that edify the church, not yourself, not promote yourself. In fact, he encourages them in verse 13. If you're going to pray for any part of this gift, he that speaks in an unknown tongue, hey, pray that you have the interpretation more than the gift of tongues. You, that, that whole chapter, the whole entire chapter is trying to say, I'm trying to squelch this. I'm not trying to promote this. I'm not encouraging it. I'm trying to say, guys, please, Put this together. This, this gift of tongues isn't what you should be focused on at all. In fact, it's going to stop. In, last week I made this comment, back in chapter 13, verse 8. Charity never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. I pointed out, verse 9, for we know in tidbits, we prophesy in tidbits, but when that which is, what's your Bible read? When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in tidbit shall be done away. Chris, what did your footnote say about that which is perfect? 
coming of Jesus Christ? The second coming, yeah. And some of you have that footnote where it talks about in your Bible where it says that that which is perfect is reference to Jesus Christ coming again. Is that a possibility? The answer is yes. That's a possibility, okay? That when it talks about that which is perfect. However, however, is there any reference in this context about the return of Jesus Christ so far? The answer is no, no. Okay, is there, is there by the grammar that is used, is there clearly a reference to Jesus Christ? No, no. That which is perfect is come. That's a neuter, a neuter reference. Most of the time when we have Jesus Christ referred to as Scripture, not all the time, but most of the time he's referred to not by that which is perfect, but him or he which is perfect by a personal pronoun that is masculine as opposed to that which is a neuter um, reference. And so what you have here in this text is to say it is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ, I understand that is a possibility. I think it's a very remote, out of context interpretation. The clearest is that which is complete, that which is in full, the word of God has come, then that which is in tidbit shall be done away. It fits the context, it fits what's being said so clear without any type of gymnastics and jumping around with other theology. It's all there in the text. So, you give you a point of reference just to point this out, is um, back in the Bible days, within just a couple, two, three hundred years of the church, here's one of the leading uh, scholars writing on, on the book of 1 Corinthians. He said, when he's writing about this chapter of chapter 14, he says tongues were obsolete. He says it has ceased by his day. He makes this comment. The obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to by their sensation. We no longer see this. It's not happening. We don't understand what it was all about. That's around 300 A.D. Augustine, who was one of the chief uh, uh, of the church fathers, wrote this. They were signs adapted to that time it has passed away. He says, why is it that no man speaks in the tongues of all nations when he's living, when he's writing around 500? Because the church itself speaks in the tongues of all nations. The gospel has spread around the world. We don't need that gift of tongues anymore, is what he's pointing out. So early in church history, they didn't even know what tongues. There's only one record in all of church history prior to uh, around 1100 there's only one group that spoke in tongues these were people that believed God was still speaking to them and they were having ecstatic speech they did not preach the word of God they were very they were like modern day Quakers everybody could speak everybody could do their thing they would do healings they would do trances they would do a variety of things that's the only group in the Christian realm that claimed to have any of these gifts otherwise it disappears up until around 1500 then there's an occasion and then in 1700 it re uh, it recovers in a more popular fashion, and in the early 1900s, it's, street, it's with the Azusa Street meetings in, um, in Los Angeles, and it became popular, the modern-day uh, tongues movement. So in history, you don't have a lot of tongues happening, which fits according to 1 Corinthians. Now, here's when I uh, as I conclude, here's a couple thoughts. Somebody's going to say to me, wait a minute, now in the passage, he is going to say, like in uh, verse, verse uh, I've given a wrong reference, it's not verse 40. Um, where he's praying in tongues. It's verse 14, not 40. If I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So he's making a comment there. Some will say to me, well, if you say tongues shouldn't function, Pastor Wayne, you're, you're, you know, what about praying in tongues? Paul said in verse 14 that it was a legitimate thing of praying in tongues. Uh, I'm, I don't think so. He's saying it is happening in Corinth. Just because it's happening in Corinth doesn't mean it's right. Okay? I think what he's saying is this. In context, he is saying, you know, for those of you who claim this, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. You're saying that we can do this, but the point is, what good is it? I don't understand what, what I'm praying. So he's saying it in a negative way, acknowledging that it's happening and making a statement of fact, but not encouraging it. He's using sarcasm. And he goes, this idea of praying and nobody understanding what I'm praying goes against everything he's saying in the chapter. So you read verse 14 not from the point of just a statement of, of promotion, but a statement of demotion. 
that he is critical of those who are saying this, those who are practicing it. And then he concludes very simply, he says in the next chapter, hey, I want to pray with understanding. I'm next verse. He makes it very clear. You say that you can pray without understanding, I want to pray with understanding. He clearly says that's not what he's encouraging, praying with no understanding. Some of you might say, well, wait a minute, I've heard people say, verse 2, that we speak to God when we speak in tongues. That's according to verse 2. I've already mentioned that um, in those temple worship centers, they did do this, and this is to a God, not the God, in the original language. So it's, again, not encouraged. Um, and so, again, it goes against the idea of, by the way, does God need our edification? He, he gets our praise, but does he need our edification, our building up? No, no. no. And tongues are to build us up. It's not, it's, it's not the, a gift given just for praise. Um, what about that final phrase in this chapter that says, do not forbid to speak in tongues? I agree with that. I agree that that's, that was applicable in that time, in that era, that tongues had not yet ceased. And so if I were living back in that day, it would be wrong for me to say you can't speak in tongues if you were following the prescription given in this text. By the way, if we were going to follow the prescription given in this text, it would have to be by how many at the most? Two or three. In order. What's that? With an interpreter. One other one. No woman. Wouldn't I have to forbid somebody who violated those requirements? Yes or no? So do I read verse, do I, do I take verses 27 and 28 and say, yes, I believe that, but then I can't apply them according to verse 39? Okay? According to verse 39, I can't tell number 4, number 5, number 6 that he can't speak in tongues? No. He's already set up some prerequisites, but he's saying if those fit that prerequisite, then don't forbid them. Then let them do it if it is biblically done. And so I believe that at that time that would be the case. So here's, here's the bottom line. Here's where I get more concerned. And I know I've given you a lot of theology, and for some of you say I could care less, but here's where you want to care. Here's where we need to be is this thought. We don't need experientialism to be spiritual. We don't need that. We don't need something ecstatic. Now, if, if, if that's what God was still functioning today, I would love to stick my finger in a socket and get some pizzazz. It would make life a whole lot easier at times if that's what Christianity was about, was all of a sudden just getting this spiritual high from some, some mantra, some goofy thing we did. But that's not what God's all about. God isn't about some experientialism. God is about faithfully walking with him day by day. It is plodding through our life. It is having a prayer time. By the way, which would be easier to do, some ecstatic experience or developing a prayer life? The ecstatic experience would be a whole lot quicker. It would be a lot easier. Okay, Developing the in-depth prayer life, that takes a whole lot more work and discipline. Reading the Word of God or having somebody give, give some, some utterance from God for me and telling me, should I take that job or not that job? Or studying the principles of the Word of God. Which one's harder? Studying the principles of the Word of God. Being involved with just that real close walk with the Lord, yielded to His Word, His guidance, and saying, hey, my, my Christian life, is about having a close fellowship with the Lord, not some mysticism. Because here's the problem with mystic, mystical experiences. They don't last. And then what happens? It's almost like a drug. What do you have to do the next time? You have to have more. It's got to be bigger and better the next time. It's got to be more emotional. No, no. It's got to be about walking with the Lord in his word, and Paul gets right down to the nitty-gritty. Here's the tough one, loving people. Loving people. That's better than the gifts, but boy, that's a whole lot tougher than having an ecstatic experience. Loving people means we pray. So let's take advantage of that tonight. Let's do the remainder of our time in prayer.